Thanks, ladies. What a good morning of worship has been. I don't know about you, I needed that encouragement today. Uh, it's been a crazy week, hasn't it? And uh, seems like there's no signs of it letting up anytime soon, the craziness that is the United States of America. I, uh, Before we get into our uh, message topic this morning, if you just humor me, I want to give you a bit of encouragement that I heard last week. Um, depending on your perspective, I don't know if, if you feel like you've won this week or you feel like you've lost. Um, it's getting harder and harder for me to feel like we've or anybody has really won, uh, which drives home a more significant scriptural point, which is that there is really only one victor, and that's Jesus Christ. Because we follow Him, we are always victorious. And uh, last week when I was at the Baptist State Convention meeting, um, uh, a a video presentation was made, uh, Dr. Russell Moore, head of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission at Southern Baptist. They're basically just a think tank of really smart people who tackle cultural issues of our day. And uh, he said this, obviously this was before the election, but he said, uh, no matter who we elect and no matter what Supreme Court justices are appointed, there will never be a sitting Supreme Court that can put Jesus Christ back in a grave in Jerusalem. There will never be an elected official. There will never be a Congress that will sit. There will never be a foreign leader. There will never be a military power that can put the living God back in the tomb of the dead. And because of that, we should be hopeful. right? And come what may, Christ could return this very hour and we would have nothing but reason to cheer and rejoice in that fact. Um, so as you go forward this week and in the upcoming months and years, there is bound to be more division and more anger and more hatred. Let's unify as a body of people around the fact that Jesus Christ is alive. And we just sang about it, you know, His will be done. Christ's will will be done. And uh, I made mention of it a couple of weeks ago. This is the living God who when He speaks, even dead people must obey the will of God. And that's exciting for us. So let's pivot here as we go into um, the second part of our discussion on successful goals for marriage. These are goals, mind you. These are not um, fix-its. These are not things that uh, if you do these things, you're guaranteed a successful marriage. These are things that you strive for, knowing that from time to time, each one of us in our marital status is going to fail in these things. And if you're, uh, if your position in life right now is that of single adults, um, two things to consider here this morning. One, how can I build these things into my life now so that should the Lord desire for me to be married, that this is uh, then in place And if you're a single adult, you are going to inevitably be interacting with married adults. How can you be uh, a support and a ministry to those who are trying to fulfill the ministry of marriage? So last week we started with the idea that Christ must be at the center of your marriage. Absolutely has to be at the center of your marriage. Marriage is something that's God-given. 
marriage is something that is ordained by God, contrary to popular belief, the state has absolutely zero say in marriage. Like they think they do, but it's actually a God institution. It's given by God. Um, so uh, the state will never be able to tell me who I should or shouldn't marry as a, a minister of God's uh, gospel. Um, that's my business. If they do, then I'll you know, stick a thumb in their eye and tell them to go you know, chew hay and spend my time in prison if that's what they desire. But the marriage is not something that belongs to the government. Uh, so when we talk about marriage and divorce, that needs to be our, our foundational element there. Um, Christ must be at the center of the marriage because Christ is the one who gave marriage, and marriage is a reflection of the love of Christ. We talked about the fact that we should not set any unreasonable expectations for our spouse because when we do that, we're just setting them up to fail and we're setting our hearts up for um, suffering. We talked about dumping the list of wrongs, meaning that, uh, as it says in 1 Corinthians 13, that we're to keep no record of wrongs. It's unhealthy to be a spouse that has a checklist on your spouse. Uh, and if you're in the position where you're keeping that checklist and you're actually finding joy when you get to mark off more stuff on the checklist, then you're in a very, very uh, dark place with regards to your marriage, an unhealthy place. And we talked about the importance of worshiping together. This idea of seeing your marriage more than a, a, just a rational function of who you are one to the other, but seeing your marriage as something that was brought together and exists in Christ for the purpose of actually worshiping and serving Him. And part of your goal is to see your spouse become more of a person in Christ, a better worshiper of Christ. And in this very mysterious way, when God brings one and one together, the usefulness of those two becomes exponential in what He can do. I've seen it in my own marriage. Maybe you've experienced it in yours but once God brought you together, now what you're capable of doing for the kingdom of God has been enhanced uh, multifold. And that's very cool to experience. So hopefully today, and what we talk about is just as important. And I think what you'll find is maybe some of the things we talk about today would be even slightly more practical. And in that sense, you might be a little more challenged or you might find it a little more fun. So, and also in places today, I'm going to ask adults to put on your adult ears. There'll be some coded language, but I think uh, if you're halfway intelligent, you'll be able to figure it out based upon mixed company of ages here today. So let's start off here with goal number five. We hit the first four goals last week. If you want to listen to that, you can listen to it online. The note sheet's on there. You can follow along if you did miss it. But goal number five for a successful marriage is this. Prioritize the other above everything else minus one. Prioritize the other above everything else minus one. In God's creative divine order, if you think about how God created things in the world, the, the very first thing that ever existed that was above creation was God. So it makes sense that in the ranking of things, the most important thing in your life must be Jesus Christ. Now, in the divine creative order of things, the next thing that came along was marriage. When you're talking about the linchpins of a civilized society, there's God, and God created the family, and the first thing about family that God created was a man, and He gave him a wife, a woman, 
Those two came together. They became one flesh. That's the marital unit. God, most important. God gave you a spouse. That's the second most important thing. So as far as you're concerned, in the daily living of your life, that person that you have, that God has given you as a spouse, must be the most important priority in your life, aside from Him who always ranks above. So it's God, it's marriage. Marriage then results in children most of the time, and that results in what we call the family unit. And then there's the church. And then there's the government. These are central pieces to what God has given us for an orderly, civilized, safe, disciplined society. Now, there will be constant vying for the destruction of your marriage. Think about it. From Satan's perspective, if the one thing that God created for an orderly, civilized society, ranking above everything else apart from himself, is the spouse that he gave you, that marital unit, don't you think that maybe that would be a prime target of his with regard to the destruction of a godly, civilized society? He is going to target marriages. He's going to whisper deceit into uh, our society. He's going, to, he's going to fabricate or build up the arguments for things such as uh, no-fault divorce or irreconcilable differences or phrases like, I just fell out of love with that person. Uh, these are the things that Satan has allowed to become truths in our society that has torn apart marriage and the prioritization of the spouse. There's going to be constant vying for destruction. Um, and it's going to come from a lot of different directions. It's going to come from your children. It's going to come from your church. It's going to come from your government. There, these are going to be voices that are going to constantly be speaking into you and your marriage to try and pull it apart. One of the great harmonious Relationships in Scripture consist in these two words. Submit and love. Love and submit. We shy away from it, unfortunately, because they're hard words for our secular society to hear. But let's read them again in Ephesians 5, 22-32, because in these words, you see the prioritization of this relationship. Paul just got done speaking to the church about the importance of the church submitting one to another. He says in verse 22, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church because we are members of His body. 
Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. There's so much back and forth. What we do in our secular mind is our, our fleshly mind as we do this. We focus on the words that simply matter to us. Uh, the secular world, you know, they, they, they hone in on that word for a woman, submit to your husband no matter what. And they have no idea what biblical submission looks like. They have no understanding of how absolutely freeing and healthy this is. And they hone in on the word love and because they think love looks like something out of a Kevin Costner movie, they think that that is the easier thing for a husband to do, that he gets off the hook easy. All he needs to do is send Valentine's Day cards and anniversary cards, and the wife needs to be barefoot and pregnant in the kitchen, submitting to whatever it is that her husband wants to do. Totally not what Paul is getting at here. Actually, kind of just the opposite. Totally the opposite, actually. Because when, when Paul says to the husband, prioritizing your wife above everything else minus God means that you are loving your wife exactly the way God loves your wife. You are loving your wife, this woman, you are prioritizing her, you are giving her so much of yourself that it looks like Christ himself is giving himself up for your bride. Now you, as a man, that causes me to become weak-kneed and to tremble at the very thought of the fact that the expectation of me as a husband is to love my wife as much as Christ loves the church. That's a sacrificial love that is incomprehensible in our society today. Now you tell me, in those words, do you see anywhere phrases such as falling out of love or uh, irreconcilable differences there is not that existence in that kind of divine love. There's no such uh, idea that exists in God's eyes with regard to that. It's, it's offensive, it's misunderstood by the world, but to think about the way Christ loves the church is all about sacrifice. It's all about putting that person's needs above your own no matter what. It's all about seeing that person look more like God in his righteousness. That's why when Paul says, washing her with the word, you know, presenting her as cleansed and without blemish, I as a man can't do that for her. But if I love her the way Christ loved the church, I can certainly be an agent that enables that kind of righteousness to be evident in her life. Instead of being a stumbling block to her looking more like Christ, my job is to be an agent of transformation that helps her to become more like Christ. This is not a domineering kind of love. This is not a love that insists on having its own way, as Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 13. This is not a stubborn love. This is a love that rejoices in truth. This is a love that wants to see your wife successful in Christ. This is a, a love that is not domineering. That's our responsibility as men if we're truly prioritizing our spouse, putting them first above everything else. It means praying for her on a daily basis, multiple times a day, 
It means having empathy for her. Your heart breaking as Christ would weep over the lostness. So we must weep over the brokenness in our wives' life. Now conversely, the concept of submitting on the part of a wife, biblically speaking, is positioning yourself as a helpmate to see your husband complete as a spiritual being, as a servant of Christ. You position yourself in a way that enables your husband to be successful in loving and serving the Lord. If you rewind all the way back to the Garden of Eden, why did God, or before the God, why did God give Eve to Adam? Two, we talked about last week, two reasons. He was alone and he needed help. God had given him a job to do, and for whatever reason, God perceived that Adam needed a helpmate. So the wife comes in, and the idea of submission is to position yourself so that your will isn't the most important thing. What you want to see happen in your marriage isn't the most important thing. You do not domineer over him. You don't kick him in the knees constantly if he's trying to stand for Christ, if he's trying to stand so that he can serve the Lord. And, and this is another thing, you know, one of the resources I put in your book is a, a book called Love and Respect. We'll refer to it a couple times today by Dr. Emerson Egrich. And one of the things he says in there is coming into the marriage with the pre-understanding that you are not moving in with and you're not uh, married to a maliciously, uh, a person with malicious intent. Your spouse's goal is not to make your life miserable. Your spouse's goal is not to ruin you. We think that sometimes, and when we do, we buy into the, the lies of the evil one. We just live with sinful human beings. So when the wife submits to the husband, she says, all right, no, he's not perfect, and yes, he screws up a lot sometimes. But when I look at my husband, I see the potential of Christ in him. Submission says, you know what? I'm going to trust him because I trust Christ. I'm going to trust him because I trust Christ. And my ministry of trusting him is not a ministry to him. My ministry of submitting to him is not submission to him. My ministry of submitting to him is actually a submission to Christ. God gave him a role. I'm submitting to that. Uh, again, I, I don't think it... I need to emphasize that much the idea that the world is not at this place. Like, the world is not talking like this. But I can say as a, as a daddy of a little girl, my greatest desire is that she would marry into a relationship where there is love and submission. I want my daughter to submit to her husband. I do. With her whole heart, I want her to submit to him. Because with my whole heart, I am praying very frequently that God will raise up a man who will love my daughter the way Christ loved the church. Colossians 3, 18 and 19, Paul just elaborates on this a little bit more. And he says this, Wives, submit to your husbands. And here's the phrase, as is fitting to the Lord, or in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. 
There's two big lessons to learn just in those two verses. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, submit to your husbands. What does submission look like? You're submitting to a man as is fitting in the Lord. Biblical submission. It is as is fitting in the Lord. This tells me something. Your husband comes home to you and says, hey, i got a great plan. Right? If we just skip paying our taxes for the next two years, we can put some money into savings, and we can buy that timeshare that we've always been looking for. Right? There's a lot of problems with that statement. But as a wife, does submission mean you go and say, well, they're the leader of the house, so I guess I'm going to have to go along with that one. There's a, there's a premise here. As is fitting in the Lord. Would Jesus Christ cheat the government? Is it a biblical, is it a biblical statement to say that Christ would cheat the government? No, that's stealing. If anything, Christ said just the opposite. Render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. So as a wife, what's your responsibility there? Submission at that point in time looks like having an honest conversation with your husband and saying, really, is it your place to lead us as a family into a place of theft from the government so we can buy a timeshare? I'm thinking no. Uh, If your husband is hurting you emotionally, physically, do you submit to that? No. Why not? Because it's not fitting as in the Lord. God has, it's not an out. God has just given you and your husband a standard. There are times as a wife where you can say, you know what, I love you, I respect you, I want to submit to you, but you're not acting biblically. God gave you the Holy Spirit, same as He gave your husband the Holy Spirit. And you are a brother and sister in Christ, co-heirs. You have a right every now and then to say, knock it off, doofus. This is not how God has called you to lead our family. You say, and then your husband pushes and pushes. He wants to cheat the government. He continues to harm you physically or emotionally. Then what do I do? Then you go to your church. And in in some cases, I mean, you go to the authorities. There's nowhere in the Bible where it says submission means that you need to remain barefoot and pregnant and beaten in your home or emotionally abused. That is not. That's not biblical submission. That's not biblical love. I think what Paul's getting at here is, yes, you're doing these things for your spouse, but even more so, you're doing them for Christ. And for the record, again, just as a reminder, in the full context of that Ephesians 5 text that we read, it's the responsibility of the entire church to be in healthy relationship. And what health, you can read this on your own, the entire chapter of Ephesians 5. But Paul says that it's important for us all to submit one to the other. So, man, you have a responsibility to submit as well to the men in this congregation and to the women in this congregation. We submit one to the no- another. Here's what's going to happen. A loving husband is going to put his wife first in love because of Christ. And a wife is going to prioritize her husband because of Christ. And the end of this Ephesians 5 text, it says, 
However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So he's saying, okay, there's mutual love that goes on here. The wife needs to love her husband, but more importantly, the husband needs to love his wife, and now the word changes, and the wife needs to respect her husband. There's a lot to this as well. Love and respect. It's this amazing cycle. A husband's love fuels respect in his wife, and a wife's respect towards her husband fuels more love for his wife, which fuels more respect for her husband, and on and on it goes. We're created in God's image. We are all created in God's image. And even since they're little girls, women desire loving security in their life. They do. That's the love that women need to experience going forward every single day in a marriage. Now catch this. Respect. Since they have been little boys, little boys walk around and they walk up to their moms and they do things like this. Feel my muscles. Feel my muscles, mom. See how many push-ups I can do, mom? Mom, see how much money I brought home, my paycheck for my first job? Mom, did you see how fast I mowed the yard? Which isn't always a good thing, by the way. This is what little boys do. Mom, did you see the pictures of the, the deer I shot? Mom, did you see I got my driver's license? Little girls don't do this quite as much. Boys, you can count on them. Feel my muscles. Feel my muscles, Mom. Why? Because little boys grow into grown men. And they have a thing in them that requires the respect even when they get older. Men come home and they say, have you seen the picture? Why don't you just take that eight-point deer that you just shot, why don't you take it to the butcher? Why would you have to pull in the driveway with it? Because I wanted you to see it. Look. I mean, this thing probably scores out, you know? Those are perfect brow tines. I mean, look, it's symmetrical. Look how big that thing is. Do you know how much this field dresses? And in the wife's mind, she's like, oh, my word. And, and, and the man at that point is going, feel my muscles. Feel. It gets boys in trouble when they're younger. But it's just a sign of being created in the image of God. There's another great book. Uh, the author's name is Doug Wilson. And he wrote a book called Grown Up Boys. And it was, the, uh, it was based on the, um, the neutering that's going on in our culture of, of young men today to try and turn our young men into women. And why don't we just let young boys be who God created them to be? If you've read John Eldridge's book, Wild at Heart, it's a similar kind of thing. And on the picture, on the cover of the book, are two young, well, it's an old kind of painting sort of picture, and it's two boys, um, just in their underwear, teenage boys, down by the watering hole, and they are wrestling and beating the snot out of each other, right? Because that's what boys do. And we say, no, no, boys don't fight. Boys don't, boys don't wrestle like that, you know? Quit, quit dragging your brother to the ground. Quit trying to climb things, you know? Quit trying to climb the cabinet. It's going to fall over on you. Why can't you be more like your sister? 
These are dangerous words when we start saying those things. Why can't you be more like your sister? Why can't you be more like a woman? Because God created us two different ways. Doug Wilson would say in his book that there's a part of young boys in created in the image of God that created with a savior complex. They were wired by God to be protectors and providers. That's the way they love best. And when you neuter them at a young age, you're going to get a generation like we have now. So prioritizing means sometimes choosing to fulfill love or respect one or the other when the other spouse is lacking in the... So if your wife isn't respecting you, you still choose to love. And when your husband isn't loving you, you still choose respect. Because if you don't, this cycle will continue. Um, Emerson Eggers, he, he put it this way. He said, you can experience disappointment, but it's your choice to disrespect or to remain unloving. You can experience disappointment from your spouse. I mean, we all know that happens. But it's your choice whether you're going to remain unloving and disrespectful. In this submit, love, love, respect, harmony, at the very center of it is Christ. Putting Christ first above your spouse is what enables this harmony. Prioritize the other above everything else minus one. Goal six. The goal I fear the most today. Get close, closer, closest. As a a couple, you must get close, then you must get closer, and then you must get closest if you want to have a healthy marriage. Now, under that point, I want you to write three words, okay? That's your um, eyeliner pencil or your kid's crayon. And write these three words. Date, communicate, and be intimate. Date, communicate, and be intimate. Get close, closer, and closest. Do those things that intentionally foster intimacy and depth in your marriage for the sake of healthy longevity. So, just because you go on a date, just because you communicate today, doesn't mean that tomorrow is going to be better. But if you make it your priority to consistently date, to communicate often and well, and to be intimate on a regular basis, you will foster longevity in your marriage. Let me read an in-your-face text from Proverbs chapter 5, verses 15 to 18. The writer of Proverbs says this, Drink water from your own cistern and fresh water from your own well. Should your springs be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets... Let them be yours alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. I want to start with the last part of that. This phrase, wife of your youth. This is the date part. There was a something about your spouse beyond mere physical appearance 
and mere physical pleasure that drew you and made a connection between you and that person. Dating centers, centers us on those things that we fell in love with about our spouse. Maybe it's, maybe it's my witty sarcasm, right? Maybe it's they're, that they're a, a foodie, you know? They love to explore new restaurants. Uh, maybe it's um, the dry sense of humor that they have. Maybe it's that they're a free spirit. They love to do things spontaneously. Remember one time my wife and I were, obviously before kids, we uh, were sitting in a Cracker Barrel in Bradenton, Florida, having breakfast on a Saturday morning. I should say Saturday morning. It's probably closer to noon because we actually slept in then. And um, we were having breakfast, and uh, and in conversation it came up that Mindy had lived in Florida, you know, good portion of her life and she had never been to Miami and I had been to Miami probably about six or seven times at that point and I said oh we should go to Miami and she said yeah we should do that okay let's go now we didn't even go home we didn't pack a bag we went with the clothes we had on we made a three and a half hour drive from Bradenton Florida to Miami uh, before smartphones you know so we just Drove around, so we found a hotel that we liked, and we went in and asked if they had a room. Uh, I think we bought like a pair of shorts or something and uh, toothbrushes. And um, we stayed at a hotel on South Beach, and we walked a couple blocks over to the beach and spent the rest of the day um, and, you know, enjoying the Atlantic Ocean. And then we put back on the same nasty clothes that we were wearing, and we went out to dinner at Coconut Grove. And uh, that's one of the things that I fell in love with about my wife. It's just that spontaneous thing. Uh, You know why that's important, though? It's because there are things in life in general that steal that kind of stuff. They, um, They look like children. They look like they're this tall, and then they get to be like this tall and they start out by eating baby food, and then they eat everything in your refrigerator, and uh, they have very demanding schedules. When From the moment they come into the world, their schedules are demanding, and you would think that as they get older, the schedules would get a little less demanding, and they don't. Uh, sometimes I think it gets worse, although at least I get a little more sleep at night. Uh, it looks like diapers. It looks like bills. It looks like responsibilities. It looks like commitments that you've made. All of a sudden, you're coaching your kid's team, and you're like, how did I get into this mess? It just is one thing after another. And unless you're dating from time to time, you forget the things about your spouse that drew you to them. You have to prioritize this. I forget if it was James James Dobson or who it was, but um, it was recommended, you know, that uh, spouses need to date at least once every month, if not once every other week. And they need to get away at least for an overnight, twice a year to where it's just the two of them. Now, if you're here and you don't have children and you're married, you're thinking to yourself, well, of course. I can tell you, when you have children, the prospect of getting away overnight is seen, you might as well just say, you know, like, I'm going to ride a spacecraft to Mars someday. It seems that impossible. I would like to see, honestly, to be a church where... We could support one another in this sort of stuff. 
So, I mean, I'll just use my family as an example, not because I'm begging for help right now, but just as an example, if, um, okay, so if I have a, a nine-year-old and a 14-year-old, uh, and I want, or, and somebody wants to be a blessing to my family, when was the last time you and your wife, when was the last time you and Mindy went out? I don't know, I, I guess overnight, it's been probably like eight or nine months. Oh, wow. So, you know, hey, does Ben want to come hang out with so-and-so on Friday night? You know, or be that kind of, do you know what's the hardest thing, I think, for parents, just practically speaking? Do you know how much it costs to go on a date? I mean, depends what you choose to do. Do you know how much it costs to go on an overnight? And then the prospect of paying somebody to take your kids, you know, and the idea of even, like, feeling like you're burdening somebody with your children. You don't want to farm your kids out. You know, it's bad enough that you have them on hours on end under your own roof, and then you want to hand them off to somebody else. I'm just joking, mind you. But all those things go through your mind, and you can constantly think of reasons why you should not bother trying to date your spouse. Maybe as a church, I'm just saying we can encourage one another in our marriages by helping couples to see this through and not have any excuses. Dating uh, is so key. And we can spend a lot of time there. The next thing we talked about is this idea of, okay, so close, getting close, that's dating. Getting closer, that's called communicating. Communicating. Now calm down, men. No, this is the most dreaded word you could possibly hear today. You need to be communicators. Because in a man's mind, it sends a shudder up and down their spine as they envision like warm herbal teas and sitting on the front swing porch talking about your relationship with your mother. That's awful if you're a man, generally speaking. And if, that, if that's an idea of a good time for you as a man, um, I'll be available afterwards and we can, we can talk about that, I guess. I don't know. One of the most important aspects of, of a healthy marriage is communication. And not just like getting your words out, ladies. Like it's not just about, you know, communication isn't just making sure that you get your 25,000 words out on your spouse by the time you hit the pillow. The idea is also that the message is being received and that the message is being processed. So what your husband can say in like 15 words, uh, you need to respect that. Your husband's communication may be 15 words. And you need to process 15 words. Man, if your wife needs to communicate something to you and you hear it coming, man, you know that that story is building like a snowball downhill. And you know you're going to, you got to say to yourself, I'm in it, man. I'm investing in this because I love her. I'm going to invest in this snowball. And eventually we're going to arrive at the bottom of the hill together in, in one healthy piece because I love her. I'm going to listen to the thousand words. Um, but the most important thing is that the communication, healthy communication, is not just the sending, but it's also the receiving and the processing between the two of you. And what gets in the way of this are these things called emotion, frustration, and anger, and sin. Yet James reminds us, and you can look these up for your homework, but in James' epistle, he reminds us that we must be slow to anger, slow to speak, and quick to what? Listen. That's healthy communication. 
slow to anger, slow to speak, quick to listen. James also goes on to say that we must use our tongues very carefully because they are probably the most dangerous entity that we have in our whole human body. They could set off a wildfire, he says. The truly disciplined Christian is the one who has learned to bridle their tongue. This is all healthy communication. So close, date, closer, communicate, closest. Here we go. The intimate, the intimate. Let me read you a text here from Paul in 1 Corinthians 7. Paul says, A husband should fulfill his marital responsibility to his wife, and likewise a a wife to her husband. This is a verse my wife reminds me of a lot. She she doesn't memorize the last scripture, but she's memorized this one. A wife does not have a right over her own body, but her husband does. And in the same way, a husband does not have a right over his own body, but his wife does. Do not deprive one another sexually, except when you agree for a time to devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again. Otherwise, Satan may tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say the following as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all people were just like me, but each... He's talking about um, being without a wife, which is... Don't take that the wrong way. He says, but each has his own gift from God, one person in this way and another in that way. The intimacy of marriage, I think we can all agree in the room, the intimacy of marriage is certainly something that is a gift from God. No doubt about it. Um, It took me... No time flat to figure that one out. But do we often think of it as a command of God with regard to both physical and spiritual purposes? Do you think of this gift that God has given us in marriage, intimacy, as something that he has given us as a physical and spiritual purpose? Maybe the physical purpose is a little easier to get our minds around. Spiritually speaking, this is something that is significant in God's eyes. Consider the phrase, become one flesh. Let's dwell on that. This is a uniting that occurs. That biblically speaking, is once that uniting occurs, it's, it's inseparable. Once you become one flesh, there's no tearing that flesh apart. I mean, yes... But when you tear flesh apart, what's the, what's the trauma of that? I mean, there's, there's carnage involved, is there not? So when we're united, we become one flesh. Here's what, here's what physical intimacy enables. Physical intimacy enables, according to this text, fidelity, I mean, that's, that's faithfulness in your marriage, and it enables personal holiness. If you think about the spiritual aspect of it, just having that aspect in your marriage enables you to be more faithful and as a result enables you to be more holy and righteous in the eyes of God. But it also enables mutual sacrifice and the giving to one another. Without being too um, blunt here this morning, I think uh, this physical intimacy and everything that goes along with that 
is a sacrifice one to another. Uh, it's, it's a giving of yourself. Think if, if you remember your honeymoon, you know, and you think, oh my goodness, is this for real? Is this really? Is this person really doing this for me? It's overwhelming if you dwell on that for a while. And the most vulnerable position for a person is to sleep next to a person. You have to really trust somebody in order to completely shut down your body that close to somebody else. But then, to freely give of that body to that other person. I mean, what a beautiful image of sacrifice and love. And not to mess with your minds too much this morning, but in everything, there is a spiritual component. In everything in marriage, we find Christ. A Savior who would so willingly humble Himself and give of His own body in order that we might experience spiritual righteousness and growth and satisfaction. You give of yourself to your spouse in every way imaginable, even the intimate ways, so that they are better for it. And sometimes, let's be honest, if you've been in marriage for any length of time, and and if you've got short people running around your house, it is really a sacrifice sometimes, isn't it? You are dog-tired. You are emotionally spent. If you're a woman, you have been pawed all day, man. You've been spit on, drooled on, pooped on. It is tough. It is a sacrifice. I understand that. All I'm saying is that one to another, one spouse to another, recognize that sacrifice. Recognize that sacrifice. I think physical intimacy enables prayer and spiritual growth. Paul says that the only time you should maybe separate is for a season of prayer. And how could you possibly separate if you've not been satisfied to begin with? Satisfaction enables an opportunity, especially ladies, especially for a man. It enables them to focus on what needs to be focused on. It enables them to prioritize what needs to be prioritized to be the spiritual man of God that they want to be. Physical intimacy also enables a greater appreciation of God's goodness. If you if you want to sum up, if you want to sum up that in one phrase, it's this: it, my my marriage night was like wowza, what a good gift. I think when Adam was given Eve, it's it sounded like that. I mean, we don't have a quote from Adam, but I'm pretty sure that when God took the bone out of his rib, and he presented her to him, and they were naked and unashamed, and the two became one flesh, and they united at that moment. Probably what when Adam was given Eve, and he looked at her, he probably said to himself, Wowza! Yes! This is good! I mean, I've seen all the stuff you've created, God. I mean, the... The steer, that was really cool. And there's some really colorful fish. That's awesome. You know, the birds of the air, it's amazing that they can fly. I don't know how they do that. But this thing right here, man, this is the best. She is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. I'm not letting this one go. Wowza. And you know what? You know what wowza translates to in Greek? I'm kidding here. 
God is so good. God is so good. When you look at your spouse that way, it's a reflection on your love for God and the goodness that He has towards you. Shame on the world for making it something that it's not. Shame on us for buying into it. Is it supposed to be pleasurable? Yes. Is it supposed to be fun? Yes. Is it supposed to be fulfilling? Yes. Is it supposed to be satisfying? Yes. Is it supposed to be something that we long for? Yes. But what, as Augustine would say, what we God has given to us as good gifts we have taken in our sinful nature and we have perverted it. Physical intimacy also enables more of the imago Dei. Imago Dei is a Latin word. It simply means, it's this theological concept meaning the image of God. It's referring to God's creative work in human beings. This thing that couples enjoy in marriage is an amazing reflection of the image of God. I mean, gorgeous. We should not be ashamed of it. We should not shy away from it. Um, it is who God is. Consummating His love for His bride. You can go back and listen to the first message about this. Consummating His love for His bride. The procreation of the church. The growth of the church. Through the making of disciples. Um, it is who God is. Intimacy is who God is. Goal seven. Last of this morning. This isn't going to make sense until I explain it. Practice open boundaries. Practice open boundaries. Read with me these important words. Look at Proverbs chapter 2. Verses 6 to 19. It says, For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up success for the upright. He's a shield for those who live with integrity, so that he may guard the paths of justice and protect the way of his followers. Then you will understand righteousness, justice, and integrity, every good path. For wisdom will enter your mind, and knowledge will delight your heart. Discretion will watch over you, and understanding will guard you rescuing you from the way of evil, from the one who says perverse things, from those who abandon the right paths to walk in ways of darkness, from those who enjoy doing evil and celebrate perversion, whose paths are crooked and whose ways are devious. It will rescue you from a forbidden woman, from a stranger with her flattering talk, who abandons the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God, for her house sinks down to death and her ways to the land of the departed spirits. None return who go to her. None reach the paths of life. Typically, the best offense is an aggressive defense. We NFL football fans have heard this cliche many times. Defense wins championships. In Europe, during the Roman times, properties were lined and marked by hedges. And what these were were mounds of earth with these thick, gnarly forms of vegetation that would grow up way high and all around. 
and these hedges um, provided an incredibly thick form of separation. They kept animals in. They kept the property protected and safe. So fast forward to the month of June, 1944, in the days following D-Day, the hedges in Europe proved so daunting that the Allies remained stuck, unable to get through these hedges. I mean, this is vegetation, and they couldn't get through these hedges while the Germans languished, languished in their solitude and protection on the other sides of these hedges. So the Allies eventually had to figure out a whole method regarding Sherman tanks and and the, uh, the, the intelligence of even the men down to the lowest rank to uh, retrofit tanks and things to eventually get through these hedges. But what was amazing was how long the Germans were able to hang out and be protected because of these hedges. You say, well, what does this have to do with me? I implore you in your marriage to put hedges of protection around yourself but to do it with openness. Here's what I mean. A hedge keeps harm out. It's a proactive step that you take. You put a boundary of protection in place between for you and your spouse, in your marriage, in your family, to keep harm out. The openness allows you both to have control over that hedge. So, hedges... Keep enemies out. Uh, the writer of the proverb that we just read refers to this. He talks about discretion and wisdom and understanding and how it keeps the enemies out. Psalm 60, 69, verse 4. The psalmist cries out, he says, Those who hate me without cause outnumber the hairs on my head. Many enemies try to destroy me with lies, demanding that I give back what I didn't steal. Here's the deal. If you live with a godly marriage as your intent and purpose, there are always going to be forces, individuals in this world, that are going to be trying to tear at your marriage, to pull you apart. And even if you've done nothing wrong, they're going to try to change the perception so that they can tear you down just based simply upon perception, even if it's not reality. Hedges keep the enemies out. Hedges keep temptation at bay. So if there's stuff that a man or a woman uh, feels that they may be tempted by, simply putting a hedge of protection around uh, helps to control that. Hedges keep the perception of others towards you honest. When you put safety barriers around you, it helps others to not even be able to cast dispersions about you, not even be able to make stuff up about you so that they can tear you down. And ultimately, the joy of this is that when you build hedges around your marriage, it helps to keep comfort and peace in. When you have hedges in your marriage, we see that as a bad thing. Like, hey, you know, why do we got to have an internet filter? Or why do you have to have an accountability partner? Or why do I have to have the password to your Facebook account? You know, why do we have to have these protections? Because... There's freedom and peace and comfort in that. I love that my wife can pick up my phone anytime she wants, and she goes through everything. Everything. The majority of it bores her to death. But 
that she can go on my Facebook account and just scroll through whatever she wants, go through all my old messages on Facebook. And you know what I do while she's doing that? Laying there next to the bed. I may be going through her phone, maybe having a conversation about something that's been going on during the day. There's never a thing in my life that concerns me for her to take a look at. That's where the openness comes in. We have hedges. The hedge looks like this. She has a password to all my social media accounts. I have the password to all her social media accounts. And there's comfort in that. Because she knows that there's nothing illicit going on there. That girl that I dated when I was 19 years old and I had the whole world figured out, she's on my Facebook account. And Mindy can go on there and trash whatever it is that she was wearing that particular day or make fun of how hideous her children are. I'm joking, joking. Sort of. (laughs) Hedges keep comfort and peace in. This is what the writer of Proverbs said in verse 3. Proverbs 3, verses 3 to 6. He said, Never let loyalty and kindness leave you. Tie them around your neck as a reminder. Write them down within your heart. Then you will find favor with both God and people and you will earn a good reputation. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not depend on your own understanding. Seek His will in all you do and He will show you which path to take. Tie loyalty and kindness around your neck as a reminder. Write them deep within your heart and you'll find favor with God and people. There are certain things that I do in my life, not because I even believe that um, I'm untrustworthy or that I'm tempted. I do certain things just simply because of perception's sake. Like, we have cameras all throughout this church building. Not in the bathroom, but everywhere else. There's a camera in my office. So, if you're the right person with the right passcode and the app, or you want to go online or whatever, I guess you can figure it out. You could watch me doing my work all day like Schroeder at a keyboard if you wanted to. But it's also recording everything that happens in my office. I don't ever want somebody to be able to walk into my office, meet with me, counsel me, counsel with me, and to be able to turn around after a completely pleasant experience to walk out and say, well, it would have been better if the pastor didn't touch me or if the pastor didn't make advances on me. I don't fear myself necessarily in that particular arena. But I don't ever want the opportunity for what is now 18 years of ministry to be flushed down the toilet because of somebody else lying or because of a false perception about me. So there are some things I do in my life. A good example for you as a man or a woman might be just can't ride in a car with another person of the opposite sex unless they're my spouse. I'll never be alone with a person of the opposite sex unless they're my spouse. I get that this is super hard to do sometimes, really hard to do. Um, but again, I, 19 years of marriage, 18 years of pastoral ministry, I just can't risk flushing that down the toilet because Satan has a way of shooting fiery darts that sometimes land their mark. Um, the guy who wrote the book, Hedges, uh, Dr. Jerry Jenkins, he's the co-author of the Left Behind series. Um, he wrote this book, Hedges. 
mainly because after years of teaching this stuff, his wife got so tired of hearing him say it over and over again, she said, can you just write a book so I don't have to listen to you teach this stuff over and over again? So he did. But he tells the story about how um, often he'd be asked to go to churches and speak. And when you go to a church to speak, it's not unusual to have like a, a staff person or an intern or somebody uh, from the church come and pick you up at the airport so they don't have to pay for a car. And all that makes sense. And there have been multiple occasions where Dr. Jenkins has landed and the church chose to send a woman to pick him up at the airport. And he said that um, when the person picks him up, he said, no offense, I'm going to get a cab. Or I'm, you're going to have to send somebody else. And the pastor of the church actually would say to him, well, that's, wasn't that really awkward? I mean, don't you feel bad asking that person to leave without taking you with them? And he said, oh, I'll trade 40 years of marriage for five minutes of awkward any day. So building these hedges around your life and your marriage is a proactive way, again, to allow a higher level of comfort and peace. Now, let me give you a fair warning about hedges. One, I just mentioned it. Sometimes they prove really awkward. Sometimes they're going to prove very impractical. It's going to mean saying, you know, I'm going to have to pass on that office lunch because I can't ride with this person or that person. Um... Sometimes they're going to require tweaking. You're going to have what you think is the perfect hedge in place. Culture changes, technology changes, and eventually you're going to have to put something in place to deal with that. And that means comes back to communication. As a husband and wife, you're going to have to constantly be having these conversations. I remember turning to my wife uh, some 10 plus years ago and saying, I just read a statistic here where it says, over 50% of active pastors, pastors in active ministry, have looked at pornography in the past six months. That can't be me. This was early in the days of internet filters. Can we do something about this? Can we please put a hedge? And you know what? I think the shock and weirdness of that conversation maybe lasted about a minute, and then it just made sense. I know my husband's intent isn't to go out and find pornography. I know my husband's intent is to not flush everything down the toilet that God has in store for me. But I will say this about hedges. They will always promote integrity and they will always encourage love in your marriage if you both have the right mindset about it. Hedges are significant. So let me just close with this reflective thought about your marriage today. Where are you at? Your marriage is work. My marriage is work. It's, it's supposed to be work. Go back to last week's message. God did not give us marriage to make us happy. God gave us marriage to make us holy. God's marriage, gift of marriage to you is a full-size mirror in the form of another person. And every time you look at that person, you see your own sinful self. And you know exactly what you need to work on. Marriage is something that you must invest in. You have to invest in it. That's like dating. You know, it sounds lame to even talk about that from a pulpit, but investing in your marriage is a must. You must sacrifice. And we must forgive, and we must agree to commit. We have to commit.
And here's why it's so important that we do these things. Back to the very first thing we talked about last week. In your marriage, the world sees the Gospel of Christ. Your marriage has the potential to be the loudest witness for the Gospel of Christ that anybody will ever see. How are you investing in that gift? How are you making the most of that? If somebody told you that I have this guaranteed missionary couple, they are going to go to this remote place and it is a given that they are going to reach half of that population for Christ, you'd be reaching for your wallet. How can I help send them? And yet in our marriages, we have the same potential for impact. Shouldn't we invest just as much, if not more, in it? And in your marriage, you will see divine growth, one to the other, and you'll see fulfillment, personal fulfillment. So I want to close and I just want to pray for our marriages. And to make everybody uneasy here, y'all know I'm not a touchy-feely person, but if you're with your spouse, I want you to grab their hand right now. Grab their hand. God can do something in our community, in our nation, and He's going to start with our families. I believe with all my heart. And I want God to protect what you have, and I want it to be the most meaningful, impactful, loving, Christ-centered thing you have in your whole entire life. I'm not a touchy-feely person. I believe so much in the institution of marriage and I believe so much in the gift that God has given us in the form of family. Look at the fabric of our society and where is it pulling apart? Families. Let's love one another so that we can stand for what God has given us scripturally according to His Word.